Hello and welcome to another episode of the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Susie Ferguson. Today we welcome to the podcast Dr. Omnil Shekri, who is Associate Professor of History at the University of California, Davis. And Omnil, we're so excited to have you on the podcast today. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you, Susie. It's a pleasure to be here and to speak with you today. Excellent. So everyone's going to have a good time. This is a long-awaited episode. Um, Ever since I saw you give a presentation at Princeton, I think three or four years ago on the subject of um, today's conversation, which will be about Dr. El-Shakri's upcoming forthcoming book, um, The Arabic Freud. So we'll be talking about questions about psychoanalysis and Arabic thought, mostly in Egypt in the 20th century. Our listeners can look forward also to picking up the book, which is forthcoming spring 2017, or fall 2017, fall 2017. from Princeton University Press. Um, there's also a wonderful article that we'll be referencing in this podcast, uh, also by Dr. El-Shekri, um, also called The Arabic Freud. So I wanted to start out just asking you sort of generally when we talk about Freud and psychoanalysis, what what are we talking about when we talk about psychoanalytic thought? When does this come up? Um, who are the major authors? What are the major questions that are raised? Thank you, Susie. That's an excellent question. Um, when we think about psychoanalysis, I would say that the main figure who looms in the forefront is, of course, Sigmund Freud, uh, who wrote from the fin de siècle up until his death in 1939. And he had a very broad and capacious uh, set of texts that dealt, if we were to boil down his uh, sort of major concepts to two ideas, we could say that they were the concept of the unconscious, this notion that man has an unconscious, things, in other words, that are not accessible to conscious thought, and that we access here and there through fleeting moments. So, for example, in our dreams or through things that he referred to as parapraxies, which would be different slips of the tongue or uh, misplacing an object and forgetting where you placed it, uh, and examples such as this. Within the analytic setting in which there is a figure known as the analyst and a patient, also referred to as the analysand, uh, the unconscious would come through through free association. So the unconscious kind of forms a central core concept within the Freudian corpus and within Freudian thought. I would say if we were to choose, and there are so many concepts, and it's very difficult to boil Freud down because I think he's, uh, precisely because he's such a rich thinker, The second concept would be the concept of desire and thinking about how desire works itself through uh, the human subject, uh, whether in terms of unconscious thoughts uh, or in psychosexual development and so forth. So those would be kind of two core concepts. As Freud wrote, uh, one of the things that's very interesting about Sigmund Freud's work is uh, particularly, I would say, after the Great War, which Um, as many uh, individuals at the time thought, sort of ripped the fabric of historical time, his writing begins to become quite dark. And he develops the concept of a death drive, uh, which is an interesting concept and a concept I think that we might all want to uh, return to and think very seriously about uh, as a concept for our times and what that might mean. Uh, But generally, uh, the concept of a death drive leads to, if I were to choose a third (laughs) concept that would be significant, this notion of drive that Freud developed, whether it's in terms of uh, eros and thanatos, so the um, sort of a sex or life drive and uh, uh, and a death drive uh, and the interplay of that and how that takes place and transforms both the human subject and the collectivities within which human subjects live. So this is really nice because I think, you know, it reminds us that um, Freud... 
is maybe a, a rich thinker for our time as for his time, but also he was a rich thinker and a productive thinker for many um, for many thinkers and writers in the Arab world, uh, you know, during his lifetime. So in the early part uh, and later part of the 20th century. You mentioned in your article that, that this story of sort of how Freud and psychoanalytic thought have operated in the Arabic-speaking world has gone kind of remarkably under-talked under about or understudied. Um, and you mentioned in particular that there's been a story of mutual ignorance between Islam and psychoanalysis. So I'm wondering if you can just tell us, you know, what does that mean and why do you think that has been? Uh, well, in terms of the historiography, I would actually say that there is increasingly a growing literature on psychoanalysis and Islam. And without going into incredible detail uh, regarding that historiography, I could simply note that some of that literature, perhaps a large part of that literature, has actually focused on the alleged incommensurability between psychoanalysis and Islam. In other words, thinking about the ways in which uh, they, as you pointed out, that I, the trajectories, I mean, in a way, they almost become sort of discursive signifiers, uh, psychoanalysis representing the Western world and Islam representing the so-called Eastern world, and that the two do not intersect uh, in a substantive or generative fashion. And I found this uh, problematic uh, both uh, conceptually, but also empirically, that in fact, that has not been the case throughout much of the 20th century. So if we sort of step back, I would say that in terms of my Arabic Freud project, the, what the, the, my principal sort of motivating question is, what might it mean to think through psychoanalysis and Islam together, not as a problem, but rather as a creative encounter of ethical engagement? What, how might that transform historiographically how we think about modernity in the, you know, in the region, in the Middle East region, globally, uh, and how might it transform how we think about the question that I think is, lays at the heart of all of this, which is the question of secularism? And to a large extent, I think part of what sort of uh, undergirds this notion of an incommensurability has been the assumption of a secular subject of analysis, which is to say the assumption uh, that the subject of psychoanalysis is necessarily secular. And this is an assumption, actually, that has been uh, something that is both in the Middle East and in the West. And so I'm trying to kind of undo that and to think about what it might mean to think about uh, religion and selfhood uh, productively vis-a-vis -vis psychoanalysis uh, and what kinds of stories might we be able to tell and how might we transform uh, sort of uh, psychoanalysis itself and how we conceptualize analysis. And part of this goes back to uh, the way that Freud and the analytic tradition has been viewed. In other words, and this is an, uh, a, a much older literature, but a literature that many people uh, kind of forms a touchstone for many people, which is a literature that uh, and I'm thinking here of Peter Gaze, a godless Jew that sort of really thought about psychoanalysis principally through the prism of Jewish secularism and of atheism. Uh, and so there's the, that kind of literature. There's Freud's own writings, for instance, in The Future of an Illusion or Civilization and Its Discontent. And certainly those writings can be viewed as advocating a secular worldview and as pathologizing religion. There's a smaller, much smaller uh, subliterature I'm talking about in the early time period that was exemplified by David Bacon, uh, Sigmund Freud, and the Jewish mystical tradition. And that was a very controversial text where he actually argued for sort of the affinities between the Jewish mystical tradition and psychoanalysis. 
in any case, so these are kind of uh, their debates. But what I'm really trying to do is to not actually focus on Freud, the historical personage, but to think of what is in Freud more than Freud and how can we open up the tradition and think of the tradition. And I, I am calling it, referring to psychoanalysis as a tradition, as a discursive tradition. In the sense that Talal Assad uh, Absolutely. invoked it in his yes. kind of seminal article called exactly. Towards an Anthropology of Islam. Exactly. And also Foucault and Archaeology of Knowledge in terms of thinking about sort of these moments. So I, I am trying, and so what I'm really trying to think of is sort of what happens when these uh, discursive traditions come together and right. intersect and interact. And, and Assad tells us that a discursive tradition, if I'm remembering correctly, is, um, you know, is based around a return to a, to a shared set of texts, right? Exactly. So in this sense, you know, the tradition, you know, the Islamic tradition returns to a shared set of texts exactly. or, or sayings and the psychoanalytic tradition also also re- exactly. refers to a set of texts, but is you know, more than the sum of its parts in a way. Exactly. So maybe you could take us into then, I mean, I think that, you know, part of the way that you, you get at this question of what is in Freud more than Freud, which I think mm-hmm. is a great question for, for intellectual historians in particular, is by asking how he was, encou- you know, how he was encountered, read, circulated, translated, um, talked about in, in Egypt by yes. intellectuals who it strikes me didn't see uh a kind of incommensurability between um, a religious subject or a faithful subject and uh, someone who was interested in or could benefit from thinking through the tradition of psychoanalysis. So maybe we could talk about some of those figures. I'm interested particularly in the the figure of uh, Yusuf Murad, who becomes kind of the, in your telling, kind of the, the, the spokesperson or one of the kind of key figures for psychoanalysis in, in Egypt in the 20th century. Absolutely. Yusuf Murad is very much the protagonist of uh, of the book, uh, and I become kind of very attached to him, almost in an analytic way, uh, throughout this. Uh, and so it's been wonderful uh, to work on him. Uh, and so Murad, if we could just maybe step back a little bit and just think of kind of just a very brief uh, genealogy of the transmission of sort of analytic thought. And I mean, uh, just to be clear, the book is not a reception history. I don't exhaustively track everything that's been written about Freud, I'm really trying to trace certain debates and think about particular issues uh, in a thematic and conceptual way. Uh, but we see that there's a tremendous amount of energy that kind of begins with uh, Murad. In a sense, he forms this key sort of nodal point to use the analytic terminology um, within the uh, formation of analytic thought in Egypt and also the wider Arab world. And so he returns, he does his, uh, uh, his uh, BA degree was uh, done at Cairo and uh, then he goes to France and he comes back in the 1940s. And particularly in the post-war period, a lot of energy starts, uh, be, uh, really coalesces around uh, psycho- not just psychoanalysis, but also psychology. So in 1945, he and Mustafa Ziwur uh, co-edit the journal Magallat al-Mannafs, which is published from 1945 to 1953. And that's really my largest, richest archive. And, and ilmanefs is kind of the Arabic terminology that now means psycho, psychoanalysis. That means uh, psychology, psychology, and then tahlil yeah. al-nafs uh, would be psychoanalysis, right. yes. And so, and ilmanefs, I mean, the nafs, and that's a very rich concept. Maybe we can have sort of a separate side question on that, but um, just to continue sort of thinking about this, uh, the, ge- the energy that's generated around psychology and psychoanalysis in the post-war period. So the two of them together, Ziwur 
and uh, Murad, they have a Society for Integrative Psychology, and they have a journal that's attached to it, this journal, uh, and a large number of students who are, you know, at this time, disciplinary formations are not so rigidly divided. So there are students who are basically working in the fields of philosophy, in the fields of psychology, and so forth. And they're publishing in the journal. And uh, importantly, Murad has a Friday Salon. And that is something that came up in all of the obituaries. I'm actually uh, in touch with Yusuf Murad's son, Samir Murad who has been very generous uh, in discussing um, his uh, memories with me and sharing primary source material and so forth. And so I had known both through textual and kind of oral evidence how significant the Salon was for individuals who attended it. And so that's kind of a moment in which scholars are really thinking about what it means to, you know, to translate in the true sense of the term conceptually, analytically, and also lexicographically, um, uh, the kind of the the terminology of these new disciplines. So what are the key debates um, that Murad and his circle sort of read into psychoanalysis or psychology? What, you know, what are the I mean, obviously, as you say, you know, the, the psychoanalytic tradition or um, even Freud's own texts are extremely rich, right? And there are many different kinds of debates that could come out mm-hmm. of these things. I mean, for, for, for Murad and his circle, what, what are the things that they're really interested in pulling out of mm-hmm. this literature? Well, I think for Murad himself, he's very focused on this concept of the nafs and um and, and actually, two, I mean, the nefs figures throughout the text, but kind of as a concept, conceptual object, uh, it figures in uh, two of my chapters very prominently. One that deals sort of with Magallat al-Min nefs and the, this world that was created, uh, and another chapter that deals with Sufism and how sort of su- uh, a, su- a Sufi writer who is taking up the question of psychology deals with the nefs. And so for Murad in particular, he's really trying to develop and uh, this concept of integrative psychology, mm-hmm. and he's trying to develop this notion of the self. He uses this term, wahda, which is a very significant term, and that also, uh, as I'm sure some of your listeners w- will be aware, has r- religious uh, connotations. Right. So maybe we should just, I mean, so nafs is a really interesting concept. It's one of these mm-hmm. words that I think about in the kind of realm of the untranslatable, but maybe mm-hmm. we should try, you know, just to say what what are kind of some rough translations for both nafs and wahda so that yes. we can... So nafs would be, uh, I think a sort of cruder translation of it would be sort of the self, or the psyche, the soul. But I think what's so interesting about nafs is precisely the fact that it's polysemic. So if you even think of, and the other thing is nafs, is that it has connotations of a primordial divinity. So if you go back even to, for example, the way that Ibn Arabi uses the term and he references uh, the way the Lord breathed the spirit into the soul of uh, Jesus and Mary. And so it does evoke sort of this this concept of the primordial breath, this existentiating uh, breath of creation. And so I think it's, it's a very polysemic term, and it's a rich term that serves psychology very well, because psychology in that case, in the post-war period, is not really a so-called science of... Um, of mental states, but rather it's in, in a true sense, a science of the soul. And so that's the concept of nafs. And wahda is unity, unity also. And one of the things, you know, Murad makes the argument that to think that uh, scholars should be thinking of the self as a unity of bodily, psychic and societal features. And this is very significant to him. And, um, 
in so doing, you know, I sort of asked the question, what is, you know, what is he, what is he drawing on? What is the genealogy of this concept of wahda? And we can see sort of in terms of his uh, training, and he was very much an epistemological pluralist, and I think that's what makes him so interesting. He wasn't a straightforward Freudian by any stretch of the imagination at all, is that uh, he's drawing on the gestalt uh, psychologist that he was so intrigued with when he studied in France, but he's also drawing on Ibn Arabi's notion of unity. And unity, which is a very complex notion, but simply put, uh, that is a unity that conceptualizes multiplicity, that thinks of the unity of manyness. So what I mean, um, in a way, I think that the the sort of challenge that you that you pose for us is to take these thinkers both as sort of part of their time and more than their time. And yes. I hope we'll get to that a little bit at the end. But um, I guess, you know, do you have any sense of what the context is? I mean, obviously, this is a post World War Two context. Um, you know, what, what is it about? Is there something about these ideas or this tradition, the psychoanalytic analytic tradition? Uh, or the psychological tradition um, that that you know speaks to the time in a way. Mm-hmm. I think one of the things I'm trying to develop, and this is sort of a circuitous way to get to your question, because um, I'm trying to I'm trying to kind of think about this question of context in a sort of slightly different way. Is uh, what I find most interesting is what I'm terming, and I, it took me a while to come up with this, because at first I was trying to think of, you know, commensurability, but commensurability seemed sort of um, clinical, but clinical in sort of in the bad way. Uh, and then I came up with this concept of epistemological resonances. And I think what's so interesting is what are the epistemological resonances that people find between the analytic tradition and an older classical Islamic tradition. And so, again, going to specific nodal points. So let's just take one example, like unconscious. How does Yusuf Murad, because Yusuf Murad, what's so interesting about him is he actually, in um, the journal, they published a dictionary of psychological terms, and he himself was a member uh, in the Arabic Academy of Language, so he was very much a part of this sort of more formal process of introdu- you know, formally introducing uh, words. And uh, he kind of formalizes this concept of the lesha'ur, and so this notion of the unconscious, and that's also drawn from Ibn Arabi. And, you know, we can go into detail. There's so many beautiful readings that Ibn Arabi does, for instance, in the Bezels of Wisdom, uh, talking about the story of Abraham and how Abraham was not conscious mm. uh, of uh, uh, of the, the true intent of the dream, right, in which he was to sacrifice would his the, son. Would the literal translation of that be the thing that's not felt? Or, that's not felt or known, right. we could say. So, yeah. you know, it's sort of a, I mean, that in itself is a reading of the unconscious, right? Exactly. That's really exactly. interesting. Exactly. And so in terms of thinking about the post-war context, the post-war context, I mean, there's so many ways we can tackle that question. That's something that I, uh, in a sense, was a struggle for me in the project initially. And then I began to sort of, I mean, struggles are productive, right? To think of it more generatively in terms of, the post-war context, if we think very explicitly in sort of, let's say, traditional, almost uh, sociological or social history ways of thinking about the post-war context, what are we going to be thinking about? We're going to be thinking about questions of colonialism, nationalism, and so forth. Those are clearly very important in this context. But at, by the same token, I did not want to reduce the richness of this uh, intellectual archive uh, to simply be a product of its political context. I mean, would we think of Derrida, for instance, while reading him? I mean, of course, we'll think of his larger political and uh, social and institutional context, but we still would also take the ideas quite seriously. So I kind of wanted to um, 
to run along that edge in terms of, uh, you know, thinking about the significance of ideas themselves. Yeah. And also to provide, it seems to me, different temporal axes, right? So, you know, not just thinking about context as a, in a kind of synchronic way of what is exactly. happening in the 40s and 50s in Egypt, but also thinking about, I mean, I really like this term, uh, the epistemological resonances mm-hmm. of, you know, the temporalities that they're creating, exactly. I mean, that these thinkers and writers are creating. So, for example, when Murad goes back to Ibn Arabi in order to develop a vocabulary yes. for a psychoanalytic exactly. um, tradition or, or practice, you know, that that's also, I don't want to say a context, but it's, exactly. it, I mean, it's a context in the yes. sense that it's something important exactly. to understand about his thought. Exactly. And that's something like, th- I think, I try to think about that in terms of the contemporaneity of classic texts, which I think we do recognize and realize in our field, because how could we not, right? Ghazali, Alumuddin is like one of the best-selling books in the entire Muslim world. But to kind of think about that, what that means for thinking about uh, temporality. And the political context is, of course, relevant. We can talk about that when we talk maybe about some of the later chapters that deal with that more specifically. Absolutely. I mean, I also think that what you brought up earlier is very important because um, often, I think as in doing intellectual history, you know, especially of thinkers who are not from the European or American traditions, um, you know, we we have to remember that, of course, Plato is still taught as a contemporary text, you know, for example, in Columbia's Great Books curriculum. Exactly. Often, thinkers from what is called the Western tradition uh, are still recuperated as alive mm-hmm. and useful in our present, exactly. whereas often thinkers from, you know, sort of elsewhere, unless they are perhaps the few chosen, like perhaps Ghazadi is one, um, are often studied as kind of objects of analysis that right. are then reduced to a specific context and that their exactly. resonance is not deemed to be um, to cover multiple times in the way that Plato or John Locke might be. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that seems a really interesting. Brilliantly important. stated, Susie. And one could say, actually, the exact same thing about these conte- about the more contemporary, meaning post-war thinkers, right? That they would be reduced to simply being objects rather than uh, daring to think that um, uh, someone who, such as Murad or Taftazani or any of these other characters, uh, historical actors that I discuss, uh, that we might actually learn something from them and that they might enrich the analytic tradition itself. Absolutely. So I'm here today with Dr. Omnil Shakri at the University of California, Davis. We're going to take a short break and be right back. Thank you. 
So welcome back to the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Susie Ferguson. I'm here today with Dr. Omnia El-Shakri talking about psychoanalysis uh, in the Arab world and psychoanalysis in Islam in the 20th century. Um, so we had kind of raised this question before of sort of this question of context, right? And sort of wanting to think, you know, multiple sort of temp- temporalities, but also it being quite important to situate the rise of this kind of psychoanalytic interest or excitement or energy, as you called it, um, in the post-World War II period in in its in its context and that there, you know, we want to take seriously the sort of philosophical work that's being done and the philosophical import of these texts and thinkers, but also the sort of pragmatic implementations of um, what what they are doing in these many different kinds of texts. So I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about that. Absolutely. Great question, Susie. Thank you. Um, So this was something that for me was very intriguing and that I also, to be quite frank, uh, struggled with a bit, which is to say that on the one hand, the work of Murad and his group of students was, as exactly as you said, highly philosophical, highly conceptual, and very much concerned with ethics, with what, you know, what the good life means for man, right? Um, And how, how to lessen human suffering. On the other hand, in the post-war period, and specifically in a post-colonial context, uh, which you know, uh, arguably we could say would take place after uh, 1952, uh, the question uh, questions of national sovereignty, and not just questions of national sovereignty, but questions sort of some of the questions that one could say animated my first book, uh, questions of governmentality, questions of social welfare, and so forth, uh, were very much on the minds of uh, of scholars. Uh, who viewed themselves also as advancing or advocating the national interest. Now, in the case of psychoanalysis, this is this is very, very uh, tricky stuff. And one could say that, broadly speaking, within the analytic uh, tradition, we could see, and I'm, you know, I'm obviously completely simplifying, but we could see views that conceptualize the human subject in terms of opacity, in other words, assuming that the the subject is unknowable to the other. Uh, and another uh, aspect of the tradition that views the human subject as transparent. Now, if one views the human subject as transparent, again, if we take this to its sort of sinister, uh, some of its sinister implications, this would mean that human subjects might be more amenable uh, to various biopolitical projects. So in that sense, it has very uh, concrete implications, I think, uh, for questions of ethics. And then just to bring this, in a sense, down to earth, uh, we can think of this uh, in the very specific context of Egypt. Once the free officers, even actually before the free officers um, uh, come to power in the early 50s, uh, they become aware of Yusuf Murad's work and they exhibit uh, you know, uh, a keen interest in it. And they ask him to come speak at the Higher Military Academy and to give talks about psychological testing and things of that sort. They're intrigued by this concept of unity, which one can see, for me, kind of going, you know, thinking back to uh, the first book and uh, the this whole question of sort of the creation of a like for example in Modere Tahrir of uh, the pro- one of the uh, province resettlement provinces that the Nasser Nasser state undertook uh, this concept of creating sort of a total environment uh, for the new settlers I can see some of that hearkening back to this and so this is as I said. Um, 
something that I think it's something that I think sort of looking at Murad's trajectory that you know that he moves away from that and that always at the core because he was so concerned uh, in a variety of different ways with the question of ethics uh, that he could never go down that path Uh, but there are certainly others in the in the group and I I would say particularly uh, you know uh, of the younger generation uh, who became very invested in uh, a variety of different whether it's socialist or national projects and then I think in that in that sense uh, the pragmatic applications of psychology or psychoanalysis uh, can be very frightening and so that's something and you mentioned it seems like the book is going to get at a few examples of how that might have worked Um, and you mentioned both the realms of criminality Mm -hmm. um, and uh, investigation uh, Mm -hmm. and also of sex and gender and sort of thinking about the sex subject in a new way so I'm wondering if you can just tell you know sort of maybe to even bring this further down to earth, okay. you know, some of these sinister or not um, yes. pragmatic implications. Yes. And in some cases, they're not, you know, entirely right. sinister. I'm just sort of saying if one one can see if, if one goes too far down that path, what and that might mean. I think also, I mean, it's I mean, sinister me. might mean, you know, engaging in social reform right. projects, which people don't really consider that sinister. Right. But it's a particular use and application of. Um, right. And yeah. that the subject, you know, that, that, that when you look at a school of thought, which is it sounds like you know, not only not suppressed under the free Mm -hmm. officers and under Nasser, but in fact taken much interest in, you know, there is a degree of um, sort of a suspicious, you know, sort of wondering of why that is. Why was it considered so useful? Mm -hmm. So, you know, maybe talking about um, both sex and gender and criminality or way of of thinking about that. Exactly. I'll start with um, maybe criminality, which in which the sort of pragmatic element is more clear. One of the things that was so interesting in this project was sort of coming across uh, these figures that I might not have come across otherwise. And uh, there was an individual by the name of Mohammed Fathi who wrote a text in 1946 uh, called... Uh, the problem of psychoanalysis in Egypt, in which he makes a very strong argument for the analogous nature of the disciplines. He sort of twins the disciplines of criminology and uh, psychoanalysis. And he's really, the text is very much sort of, it's a plea to a general audience, also to um, specialists in the legal field, uh, to kind of really take seriously the knowledge that psychoanalysis offers in terms of rethinking criminal culpability. Uh, And so this, in a sense, it might be one of the less sinister uses insofar as he in effect, through various different examples. And it's pretty fascinating stuff because he's like looking at specific murder cases, for instance, you know, homicide cases, and trying to make the argument that the individual in question was suffering, let's say, and he, he relies almost a little bit too heavily on the Oedipo, uh, Oedipus complex, uh, but nevertheless, that he's really trying to think about the mitigation of criminal culpability. And I try to make an argument in the chapter, kind of linking this up uh, to the demise of... Um, and rise of particular uh, sort of legal formations within Egypt in the 20th century. That's, I know, a very complex topic, but uh, that's that's what I try to do there. And so that's uh, sort of an example where kind of criminology, which is so 
aligned in many ways uh, to the state. And so there's the Center for National Research, uh, Criminological and Sociological Research, and they conduct sort of many studies on um, the figure of the criminal. And so one can see how this type of knowledge might be uh, mobilized and in that way. And you can think, too, I mean, this is certainly not um, exclusive to Egypt in a way. I mean, oh, think about, you know, not yes. only criminology today in the U.S. or mm-hmm. elsewhere, but but also kind of the, the degree to which th- this kind of science of the self has been militarized. Mm-hmm. I mean, sort of trying to profile, trying to guess about people's states of exactly. mind, um, trying to reverse engineer people's states of mind, exactly. uh, you know, that that you know, this has had sort of unexpected, probably to its progenitors, um, practical implications in the world. Exactly. Exactly. So maybe we could talk a little bit about, um, you know, as a women's and gender historian, I always want to make sure we get to this question. It just seems really um, that we can't not get to it in this Mm -hmm. case, which is also that these new ways of thinking about the self and the subject, either Mm -hmm. as knowable through a process of analysis or ultimately not knowable are also always already about a sexed subject. Absolutely. Um, And so I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that in the Egyptian case. Absolutely. Yes. How could one do a project on Freud and not have a chapter at least on the psychosexual subject? And so that was something that was uh, very important. And I didn't quite know what to expect. And I think part of it, and maybe if we get to talk about methods later, we can think about this question deeply. Um, It was... I just read very, very widely. And one of the things that was interesting to me uh, is that the literature on sex and gender, I mean, on the one hand, Murad, and there are others, of course, but he he is very much sort of the main protagonist. Um, he wrote very technical pieces in the journal, in Majallat al-Minnafs, uh, technical pieces that outlined, you know, basic that were basically... Uh, outlined for a scholarly audience uh, Freud, the Freud of the three essays on the theory of sexuality, which uh, for those not familiar in which Freud discusses the psychosexual development of the infant and then later the child in terms of oral anal phases, etc. The uh, the creation of an Oedipus complex, its resolution or the lack thereof, etc. And so those texts are incredibly interesting, but kind of through a particular kind of reading, one can see the ways in which Murad is sort of hybridizing his reading of Freud with the classical Islamic tradition. And that was very interesting to me for a variety of reasons. So I'll just give one concrete example. So Freud has the distinction. It's a distinction that many scholars argue is lost in the English translation of Freud from the German between instinct and drive. And so Murad he was so fastidious uh, in, you know, in the positive sense of the term, in terms of um, drawing out the linguistic meanings of a variety of terms. And so he draws out for his audience this distinction between instinct uh, and drive. Uh, one, roughly speaking, perceived to be biological and the other sort of its psychic elaboration. And he returns to Ghazali, unsurprisingly, and kind of develops this notion of uh, Gariza and Al-Mil Al-Gharizi, right, in terms of uh, drawing this out. And so that was a very interesting process. Uh, and he kind of also thinks through the question of the relationship between the pleasure principle and the reality principle, also by way of Ghazali through developing this concept of Tarbeya. And so that was something that I thought uh, was kind of fascinating and help is a very concrete way to think about sort of the question of epistemological resonances in the text and also kind of the the co-production of analytic knowledge. So is for him is the process of, of tarbeya or upbringing um, or subject formation or education, or there are many uh, possible translations. Is this a gendered 
or a sex process? Um, and, and, and so what's the, what's the link there? Absolutely. Um, so this process, let's maybe refer to it in English as ethical attunement, this process of ethical attunement um, and sort of ethical attunement as gendered is, and this comes up, it's interest, it was so interesting for me because it comes up not as much in his so-called scholarly texts, but in lay texts that he's written. Uh, so he wrote a full-length book, Psychologie uh, et Gens, uh, that is fascinating. And that has it has an entire section on the psychology of women, on the psychology of gender. And, then, and, and throughout the text, he's very keen to discuss the way in which uh, the child's upbringing differs due not in a norm not in a normative or prescriptive way, but due to but in actually in a critical way in which he critiques this difference of upbringing, and he argues that it's precisely because um, uh, female the female child in the Arab world is raised in a particular fashion that uh, enhances the so her her so called masculinity complex. And here he's drawing on a thinker, a neo psychoanalytic thinker by the name of Karen Hornai, who wrote her her many of her essays are collected in a text called Feminine Psychology. And so it's very interesting that he draws on this and that he focuses on sort of the um, the social constitution of the psychic nature of the female child. And so in his in his estimation um women in the arab world then are 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 too masculine or is that what the it's uh less refers to their masculinity and uh it refers more to uh the envy of the masculine Ah, i see that uh you know of the masculine position so it can be it can lead to an overcompensatory uh overcompensatory fashion or you know there's sort of a variety of ways that it manifests itself uh pathological or otherwise well as since my work is on Taibea and upbringing, I can't okay. wait to read this chapter. Um, I really look forward to it. But I think, you know, I want to turn to close our episode to this question mm-hmm. of method, right? And I think even in just um, the example you just gave, you kind of pointed at several different kinds of reading that are operating both on your part and on the, the part of people like Murad, right? Mm-hmm. We have people like Murad who are reading contemporary psychoanalytic thinkers from, you know, Europe, uh, mm-hmm. as well as Ibn Arabi and Ghazali, mm-hmm. um, who are recuper- recuperating languages that um, are sort of stretched over long periods of time mm-hmm. um, and also who are writing different kinds of texts. I mean, who are writing incredibly technical articles in this mm-hmm. journal of, you know, this, this psychoanalytic journal mm-hmm. um, and also writing lay texts for people to pick mm-hmm. up on the street. So I wonder if you could just talk kind of a little bit about, you know, how, how you deal with this kind of, proliferation of processes of reading that are going Mm -hmm. on. Yeah, that's something I've been thinking about a lot more. I taught a methods class last spring, and I would say I I think not to be too Freudian about it, but I think I think about methods a lot in a latent fashion, and then I, I wanted to kind of make that a little bit more manifest, and so I've been thinking about it in those terms. And I think you're quite right, like thinking about the question of reading practices and temporality. I mean, you put it beautifully, and I think there's sort of in Murad's reading practices, there's sort of an elastic temporality a way in which it's sort of he's stretching time and stretching um, uh, his reading corpus. So that's kind of one one way. And one, one could say the same thing, actually, about Freud. And I do some of those readings as well, where you can pick up, for instance, on the Epicurean notes uh, that exist within Freud and that are also uh, within Murad. In terms of my own, kind of the way that I read um, I, I am, I do very much, I, I guess one could say I do fit into sort of the close reading, at least, especially in this, um, 
in this text because I'm trying to do kind of these philosophical readings, uh, but also thinking about kind of, uh, what Reinhard Koselleck uh, sort of coined, Begriffgeschichte, right? This sort of history of concepts where you sort of uh, are able to conduct a, ge a genealogical understanding of concepts, not in an exhaustive uh, way, and certainly not in a mythic way of searching for an origin, for the origin, an ever elusive origin of a concept, but rather, again, kind of trying to trace these key nodal points. And then I also like to think, and this is something that came to me sort of more recently, uh, that I draw inspirations of method also from uh, the classical tradition, and so. If we think of someone like Ibn Arabi, there's, you know, there's sort of minor controversies, as it were, as to um, what types of readings Ibn Arabi is conducting in a text like The Bezels of Wisdom and so forth. Uh, and some scholars make the argument that he's really looking for isharat, for allusions uh, that exist within particular texts. And that's something that I was, I, who knows if it's some sort of uh, intuitive thing or or what it is, but that's something that I'm, I'm very attuned to when I read. So like I'll reading in uh, again a lay text like Psychologie des and there'll be this like enigmatic reference uh, to Abu Bakr al-Razi and the spiritual physic and then you know that's something I'm like I'm not going to let that slide I want to actually go back I, w I want to read that text you know it's not and so kind of just being very attuned to and attentive uh, to uh, the various different allusions within the text and to think of it in that way and not to and also to um, you know Eve Sedgwick has this great piece where she talks about paranoid reading uh, and she contrasts it to recuperative reading. And I think to a large extent, I mean, paranoid reading is something that for a variety of reasons has dominated uh, within certain subfields. Uh, and so kind of thinking about, you know, like for the chapter on sexuality and gender, you know, to not fall into a paranoid reading. In other words, to not read Murad in order to uncover the heteronormative uh, impulses uh, within that exist uh, within the text, but to kind of read the text in a particular kind of way, and nor to recuperate some sort of um, uh, emancipatory uh, sexuality either. So I think this is a really um, a kind of interesting, and I'm you know I'm trying to think about doing a similar kind of reading for my for my own work, and I'm I want to sort of ask, and and it's not uh, not because I don't believe in it, but because I'm trying to figure it out. Mm -hmm. uh, the sort of what for question. I mean, so what. Obviously, you know, being attentive to these illusions that cut across both space and time, you know, messes with our idea of the kind of synchronic temporality, right? Mm -hmm. So it prevents us from sinking into this problem of reading, um, reading thought as political allegory or as epiphenomenal, you know, as, as mm -hmm. sort of the product only of its own time, right? And mm -hmm. allows us to read it out of its time a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm wondering if you have other thoughts about sort of what... What is at stake for you in performing this this labor, really, of going back and sort of recuperating, perhaps that's not the right word, of sort of following up on mm -hmm. the isharat or the illusions mm -hmm. in a text? What do you, you know, what is what does it come to in the end for you when you mm -hmm. when you read it again, having done that work? Mm -hmm. 
I don't know about reading again, because one always has a difficult relationship to reading their work again, but with copy edits around the corner, who knows? Um, I would say the stakes, the stakes for me are ethical and historiographical. So the ethical stakes, look, so even going back to sort of what I said was the principal research question that animates the whole project, which is thinking about psychoanalysis and Islam together as this kind of creative encounter. I mean, I think... Uh, and this is, you know, the ethical, of course, has political implications. And I think we only need to think about our present historical moment to realize what it means to think through uh, the various intellectual trajectories, uh, uh, both in the East and the West, as a co-production, as co-constituted, right, as co-evil, right, taking place in the same time, in the same time, uh, but also um, being co-produced across the space of human difference, which to me, I take to be also uh, implicit in the ethics of psychoanalysis, which is very much about this kind of opening up, this aperture from which, from uh, from which one can sort of um, uh, view the other, uh, but also in so doing, exert a radical critique upon the self. And so I think the ethical stakes uh, in that sense are quite high. And then historiographically, I feel as if, I mean, despite, you know, we mentioned the work of Talal Saad, which has been very formative in my own intellectual formation. And although I personally feel that he sort of set to rest the question of the relationship between sort of modernity and tradition, he and McIntyre and, you know, uh, and, and many thinkers uh, together, there's still a way in which it's it's still it's still troublesome it's still troublesome in 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 how history is written and so how can we kind of think through the two together in that the binary between what is traditional and what is yes. modern despite the fact that Talal Assad has spent you know so yes. much of his brilliant career unpacking yes. that um remains continues to structure our scholarship in ways that you know are hard to Exactly. Get out of. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, for instance, you know, how sad it would be for someone to, for me, for some to uh, have someone read my work and say this is about reconciling tradition and modernity, right? That would be, I'd be pretty sad. So. Well, now we, we know, we know not to, not how not to respond to the book when we finally get to, get to read it. Um, I just want to thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. I, I, this has been a fascinating discussion for me and I think will be for our listeners as well. Thank you so much, Susie. What a pleasure. So, for those who want to find out more uh, about the history of psycho- psychoanalysis um, in the Arab world and elsewhere, we will post a bibliography uh, on our website, www.ottomanhistorypodcast.com. Um, you should, of course, stay tuned for Omnia's forthcoming book, The Arabic Freud, which will be published fall 2017 by Princeton University Press. Um, we also invite you to visit us at the podcast on the web to leave comments and questions and to explore other episodes. Please also feel free to join us on Facebook, where we stay in touch with our community of over 20,000 listeners and post news about upcoming series and episodes. That's all for this episode. Until next time, take care.